Welcome to the Fred Dojo Podcast, the place where pro guitar players share their secrets. Visit www.freddojo.com to access online courses and free resources to take your guitar playing to the next level. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Greg O'Rourke here, the founder of FretDojo.com. And in today's episode, Carl Orr, my good friend who's currently the artist in residence for Fret Dojo, had a great conversation with Rob Luft. Rob is an award-winning guitarist from London whose virtuosity has been compared to that of guys like John McLaughlin, Al Dumiola and Paco De Lucia. He was the recipient of the 2016 Kenny Wheeler Prize from the Royal Academy of Music and was also prize winner in the 2016 Montreux Jazz Guitar Competition at the Montreux Jazz Festival. His debut album, Riser, was released on Edition Records in 2017 to widespread critical acclaim. On the back of the success of Rob's first album, he's been nominated for a string of awards since, including the Breakthrough Act in the Jazz FM Awards, Instrumentalist of the Year in the 2018 Parliamentary Jazz Awards, and Instrumentalist of the Year in the 2019 Jazz FM Awards. In May 2019, Rob was selected as BBC New Generation Jazz Artist for 2019 to 2021, which is an accolade granted only to some of the world's most exceptional young musicians. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation that Rob and Carl had recently. It's a fantastic insight into uh, what's driving this exceptional young musician and how he really is creating a dynamic new sound uh, in the jazz world. And yeah, I strongly recommend you to check out his albums. There's a link to his album in the show notes for this episode. And I should mention, Rob actually recently recorded a very special video workshop for Fret Dojo uh, in my online academy, and you can get access to that by uh, heading to my website, fretdojo.com. And in this workshop, Rob goes through uh, a variety of compositional and improvisation approaches that he leans on when he is creating music. And uh, I found it really fascinating and, and quite refreshing um, to uh, see some really groundbreaking new ideas uh, when it comes to uh, composition and, uh, and, and playing jazz in general. And he also actually uh, goes into a bit of uh, uh, classical music and how that's influenced him as a composer as well. So it was a fascinating workshop, that one. So make sure that you uh, check that out by um, uh, heading over to uh, my Fret Dojo Academy. If you aren't a member already, you might be interested in signing up. Okay, well, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this very special conversation with Carl Orr and the fabulous Rob Luft. Enjoy. Hi, Rob. Great to see you. Hey, Carl. It's lovely to meet you online at last. I'm very happy to meet you too. So I'll just start off with a couple of really basic questions. So where, where were you born, Rob? I'm not proud to say it, but I was born in the depths of southeast London in a very strange place called Sidcup. Okay. It's near Bromley. Yeah, I know Bromley. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, I'm not proud I... to say it. it's the uh, really the uh, the depths, the dark depths where there are no stars and no moons, unfortunately, in Sidcup. Oh, well, they needed you to play some music to brighten up the place then. And, <laughs> and so how old were you when you started playing? Um, I think I was around six or seven years old. Basically, wow. my, yeah, my stepfather moved in with my mum at that time and he kind of really changed my, um, my whole enjoyment of music and of, of the arts, I guess. He just, he's a guitarist himself and a kind of plays in like pub rock bands around Southeast London and Kent and he does you know, that kind of scene. And he brought guitar into the house when I was six or seven. And the rest is history, as they say. So um, what about your uh, musical education? Did you take lessons from a young age or, or what did you or did your fa stepfather teach you songs? Or Yeah, basically, it's a bit of both. I took violin lessons from a really young age at my primary school where I was where I was at. There was the public you know, the kind of state violin or peripatetic teachers were coming in as part of the, the council music lessons. And so I right. got, yeah, it was brilliant. I got violin 
tuition from like four or five years old and learned to read music there. And then my stepdad came when I was six or seven and started showing me, like you say, teaching me rock and kind of blues stuff, you know, showed me the the classic Hendrix, John Lee Hooker, Robert Johnson kind of angle for, through the blues and got into just learning about about that side of things. And those two paths of classical violin and kind of rock and blues and rock and roll guitar slowly merged and somehow met in the middle at jazz. Excellent. That's great. So you started playing the guitar in your six and you're playing the violin as well. Do you still play the violin? I have been known to pick pick them up, especially as it was my first instrument, kind of right the way through even high school and secondary school until I was kind of 16 years old. I did all the grades and I did all mm. the the you know did the like the the local orchestra and the you know kind of led the school orchestra and all that kind of stuff playing um classically and i just never really got the hang of playing improvised music on it i could do some basic folk kind of improvisation yeah. but the guitar when i realized that i could improvise on the guitar something about the the layout of the instrument i found easier without the bow and without a few of these obstacles that the violin presents. And the, the visibility of the guitar neck? Yeah, the frets, the everything. I mean, the lack of uh, fixed pitch on the violin also made it slightly difficult to improvise for me. And yeah. the way the mechanics of it, are just it's slightly more challenging. And I was so taken with the way the guitar was laid out for improv. It was just perfect and it took over. Okay, yeah. Great. I'm a big fan of the violin. I wish it was used more... I mean, I, I, I must say, I, I quite like the sound of string instruments together, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Um, gu- guitar and guitar and even electric guitar and acoustic guitar or electric guitar and acoustic violin or, or double bass violin guitar like cello. All the, I love the sound of the string instruments together is something we don't really hear enough in jazz, in my opinion. You know? Absolutely, yeah, and I, yeah. one of my first... I, we've already talked about it a bit on the on the telephone, but my first loves in jazz were an infusion music. One was there's a great Frank Zappa album called uh, is it called Weasels Ripped My Flesh, and yeah. it's got an incredible violin kind of jazzy bluesy violin solo in the middle of a track called The Little House I Used to Live In, and I thought it was. Many for many years, I thought it was Jean Luc Ponty, but it's definitely not. It's a chap called That's I think Sugarcane Harris, someone like that, or Jerry Williams, or someone like oh, that. Okay, and then I got this DVD of Mahavishnu at Montreux in 1974. I think it's a kind of legendary set they oh, did. The big band the, with the orchid, the sort of string string trio. Yeah, and I saw back, and that was when I was quite young. Those two, rec- those two things that I heard and saw and that was mm. already with violin and guitar obviously the Zappa band with the violinist and yeah. the Mahavishnu orchestra with McLaughlin on the the the, the double neck and yeah. and the violin there of course I think must be Jean-Luc Ponty at that stage yeah yeah fantastic and that already I love that sound violin and guitar but I went down the guitar route of course it's a bit yeah. more glamorous I don't know <laughs> well yeah well, yeah, I mean, yeah, something cool about the guitar, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, I, I, I really completely see what you're talking about. So, so the thing that really turned you on was maybe onto jazz was was John McLaughlin, which turned a lot of rock people onto jazz, actually. Yeah, I mean, coming from a love in my early teens of Hendrix and of the blues and of also of that British blues sound, the the Clapton yeah. and the John Mayall band and Cream, and then yeah. getting hold of Bitches Brew, obviously, <laughs> it's it's quite a good way into to to jazz. I mean, there's some of that stuff on on Bitches Brew that McLaughlin plays. It's so there's a pretty clear link between the the rock music of that of the late sixties and and fusion. I guess. I mean. Yeah, it's just and, it yeah. hooked me straight away. It's yeah. Anyway, I could talk about that music all day, but um, 
Yeah, that guitar playing on that is is doesn't really sound like rock guitar playing, but it doesn't sound like any jazz guitar playing I've ever heard either. It's quite otherworldly, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy, especially that, like you say, at the time it was recorded in '69 or '70 or whenever it was mm. recorded, it was like you say, it doesn't sound like jazz of the '60s, and it doesn't sound like like Clapton, you know. So I don't know. No. Don't know where it comes from. He was from. really searching, you know. He was really, really searching. It's, a, it's, you know, he. Uh, anyway, that I, f- I feel like it's a good example of like just kind of. It's like he stripped it all back, all the um, cliches and any kind of semblance to any anybody else. Just stripped it right back, and somehow went his own way. But uh, I mean, that's something I think we've all, like everybody, sort of. If you really want to develop an original style, there's a kind of definitely a degree of unlearning involved, isn't there? You know, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I mean, playing in different bands and different projects, you've got to adapt your playing to that particular context and that particular moment and that particular gig, wherever it is. Oh, can you give me some examples? Because I'm uh, one thing that's unusual about you is uh, we when we spoke before. Um, when I was growing up, one of the things that musicians always said, I mean, great musicians, you know, always said was you've got to pay your dues. And, in, you know, the famous examples of that were such as, um, you know, um, well, I guess Miles Davis paying his dues playing with Charlie Parker and um, and uh, and then all these people paying their dues subsequently with Miles Davis um Coltrane and and Paul Chambers, uh, Bill Evans, and then on to younger people like McLaughlin and and then uh, Chickory and Herbie, and then on to younger people still like Kenny Garrett and so on, and like yeah. paying the dues, learning on stage as well as your individual practice and study, but the on stage learning and sort of uh, I guess t- mentor mentorship of older musicians and you you've done quite a lot of that haven't you yeah I've kind of grown up as a sideman basically and learning to play in whether it's a big band you know like we talked about the first time I actually heard you play live Carl was when I was playing in the loose tubes big band at Ronnie's and um, I had to you have to adapt loads to play in that context but it still requires, you know, when you're playing music by people like Django Bates and Eddie Parker, <laughs> you've still got some serious, there's some serious fretwork involved. Yeah. But you, you, it's yeah. also, like you say, unlearning involved in that because you can't just, um, you can't just play whatever. It's totally context dependent how you play, and that that kind of mentality s- spread right through my my work has spread right, right through my my work over the last five years playing with other musicians, Jason Yard, Byron Wallen, a a friend of ours, Adam Glasser, who I've played with a lot and playing a lot of township jazz from South Africa. And that, that's again, a totally different world of triadic, uh, Mm. of triadic music. And it's not with, it doesn't come directly from that, that bebop tradition, I guess, where there's loads of changes and Mm. long uh, cycles of chord, chord sequences. It's much more about, you know, the primary three triads i guess so mm. that again requires a degree of unlearning but it still requires a lot of skill to play that kind of with a stylistic awareness so i've just grown up over the last five years and london's such a colorful city with so many different masters of their of their style that you you know if you find just if you put yourself out there i guess you get the chance to play with lots of these these different experts in their own fields so i just been really blessed and lucky to dip into those worlds a little bit so i mean for me when i was in those situations um you know because i really pursued that myself a lot you know and um i always looked at it as a learning experience and i i had without wishing to tell my own story in this situation because it's not the point but i had three mentors musically who i well three on stage mentors and I had a few at school in my school years as well. But um, I learned specific lessons from each one, you know, and uh, like the first one was, 
I was Jackie Osarski, a great musician in Sydney, and he taught me about playing in a rhythm section. Yeah. And then I played with Dale Barlow, who's a great saxophonist, and he taught me about not just playing the same stuff on every solo, but really making it variable. And then Billy Cobham taught me about projecting on stage and also about how to play my instrument better, actually, even Absolutely. though he played and um, so I learned specific things from each one. Can you can you tell us a few specific things? Like what did uh, what did you learn from playing with? Um, who's the mad flute player guy? Um, Eddie. Eddie, wonderful yeah, Eddie. Yeah. What what yeah, yeah. Did, did what did you? Is there anything he said or something he did that you learned from? Well, Eddie Parker is a master jazz composer, in my opinion. Yeah. He's he's he has created his own sort of world of harmony and it's almost i almost jokingly refer to it as english jazz because it's right. it's yeah. kind of inspired by english classical composers his harmony right. by people mm. like frederick dalius like uh, william walton um, people like vaughan williams ralph vaughan williams and you know these english composers of the 20th century and eddie's right. a, he's mm. like you say he's a master flautist but he's also a brilliant keyboard player and right. he and he also shares like us a great love for the Mahavishnu, especially the early Mahavishnu albums, you know, yeah. the, the Inner Mounting Flame and uh, Birds of Fire, those first yeah. first records, ones probably with Billy on drums, I would imagine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And he, um, yeah, exactly. And Eddie, I mean, he brings in these whole suites of compositions that he's composed and they've got these incredible harmonies in them and I could you know I I could show you literally on the guitar some of these incredible sounds that he gets us working with and he's he's composed a, for example recently a suite based on a 12 tone row you know like Shost uh, like Stravinsky uh, Schoenberg yeah like Schoenberg or um any of those Viennese uh, the second Viennese school Anton Webern and he composed a jazz quartet suite of about 45 minutes in length which is entirely based on a 12-tone chromatic row. And he's used the same concepts as them in terms of retrograde, you know, play the row backwards, sure, to yeah. reverse it, invert it, and then also in terms of how to stack it up with harmonies. And when we play it on stage, it sounds like a kind of jazz rock fusion quartet sound. But actually, when you look at the foundations of the the suite, it's all based on a 12-term row. So that's an example of something that I would personally never have come up with myself. Sure. I've just picked it up on the bandstand or in rehearsals mm. rather than in lessons or in a music college. Like you say, it's very much a kind of mentorship almost being mm. on stage with him. Excellent. Yeah, I, yeah, he's a great guy. And I think, I think the other thing that, that's really important to me is Eddie's a... Very funny guy, isn't he? He's very serious about the music, but he's got that humour. And to mm -hmm. me, if you're really serious, having a sense of humour is really important. You know, oh, like yeah. he's got that light lightness about him, which is, is a really important thing. You yeah, know? absolutely. And I think that's something, again, that, that a lot of people in that generation of the Loose Tubes yeah, kind of plenty of that. Yeah, <laughs> loads of humour. Some yeah. might even say it's it's almost verging on kind of Monty Python. In well, it in is. We, we all, yeah. Well, we my generation, we all used to memorise chunks of Monty Python. You know, exactly. I and, think they're jazz. Do these dialogues in the in the playground? You know, great way to not impress girls. Let me exactly. Tell you. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we all started playing the guitar, of course. <laughs> That's right, yeah. A lot of good it did as well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you're a nerd, you're a nerd. A nerd with a guitar is still a nerd. Exactly. <laughs> as I found out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't mind being a nerd. It's all right. I can live with it. <laughs> Oh, that's really great. Okay, yeah. so, um, yeah, so you learned that from, from Eddie Parker. And... Um, so else you played with Ian Ballamy as well. He's a funny guy too. And he's yeah, a wonderful musician. He's got the scariest set of ears in, oh, uh, right. in the UK. I mean, he he just playing with him is is sort of terrifying. We 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 would do gigs together with this trio of his with a bass player, a wonderful young bass player called Connor Chaplin. Mm. And we'd do some 
we did quite a few gigs over the last few years and we'd kind of combine two very disparate styles. We'd play on the one hand, I'd get my nylon string guitar out and he'd get his tenor out and we'd play bossa nova trio stuff, you know, music by Getz Gil, you know, Getz Gilberto kind of bossa nova standards from Brazil. And on the other hand, he'd get his, his alto or his soprano out and I'd get my pedal board and my electric guitar out and we'd play free improvs and we'd do gigs where we just juggle these two totally disparate worlds and Ian he without even knowing the changes to any of these bossa nova tunes or without setting a a theme for our free improvs he could just follow my line of harmony or follow whether I was playing the changes to Desafinado by Jobim or whether I was playing a free improv with you know uh a, uh, a bottleneck slide and, and a ring modulator, he would seemingly be able to follow with his his ear uh, a melodic line through all of these things that I was playing. And it was such a, again, such a lesson. It's all there. It's all unspoken. We never talked about what we were going to do. Okay. And we just, and it was just about creating a convincing performance for listeners without really ever talking about what we were going to do. And after a, a few gigs, we realised that all we were doing was playing bossa nova and free improv. So, okay, so you've hit on a very important point there, which is jazz lives and dies on, lives or dies on the ability of the musicians or the willingness or the awareness of the musicians to listen to each other. Absolutely. I mean, actually, you know, like um, I, I'm a big believer that uh, actively listening at all times is as much a part of your performance as the notes you play. And and if you're actively listening all the time, then there's going to be a certain amount of uh, um, holding back, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, most absolutely. of the time, you know, like... Um, most of the time you'd be holding back a percentage of, of what what you're thinking of because you're listening to to the other people and then now and again you just kind of zoom in and play a lot of stuff. I must say I think a lot of musicians, even in the world of jazz, are really not aware of it. And a lot of jazz that I've played, it feels like a being involved in a chimpanzee's tea party with people just Absolutely. kind of throwing notes at you. And it's like, man, what, are we are we playing music or are we having an argument? You know, and exactly, I just yeah. I find it really I find it really frustrating the way a lot of people play. And I just think you don't you don't have to change what you play. You can play exactly how you play, but if you just do the same thing and actually listen, then we'll all have a good time. You know. Absolutely. But, you know. I would go so far as to say that's the it's the most important thing I learned from Ian, but maybe the most important thing I learned from all of the times I've ever played a sideman gig, I think. Right. And Ian himself always used to talk to me about proaction versus interaction. You oh, know, like wow. so proactive proactive jazz is kind of people just putting out fresh ideas that don't come from their surroundings on stage, that are not coming from the your fellow musicians. You're just generating, like you say, information and chucking it out there and it's proactive. It's not come from anywhere around you whereas an interactive jazz performance would be ones where some where the other musicians on the stage are all listening to each are you listening to you and you're listening to them and the ideas that you generate as a group all come from that sense of interaction and of course there has to be usually there's one proactive member so for example the soloist in the classic jazz band you know the soloist is a is proactive and and the supporting musicians the sidemen are interacting so whether that's you know the coltrane quartet elvin's super interactive on the drums and mccoy's super interactive with his modal kind of uh dense piano accompaniments and by the same token jimmy garrison's bass playing and coltrane is generating all this sheets of sound information proactively and they're interacting and that those two in counterbalance kind of heighten the sense of you know the the intensity of the performance and i think Mm. if if we're all aware of that balance between proaction and interaction at least this is what ian is always talking about when when we play together and when we rehearse i think it definitely like you say it stops the sense of this being chimpanzees in a room 
all you know or or you know or anyone not listening yeah i I think that's the best lesson we can learn and i mean because when i hear you play i must say every time i've heard you play you 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 know you really dig in and what i call dig in you know you like physically dig into the string and you're really kind of physical with the guitar and i really love that you know thank you and but you really dig in you play quite ferociously a lot of the time but it's sensitive and it's fun and you're always looking around and you're very aware and you're smiling and you're interacting and it's, it's and that actually as heavy as what you're playing is can be quite ferocious. There's a the music gets a kind of lightness about it. Exactly. You know, yeah. that's what I really like about your music a lot, man. Is oh, that thanks, combination of digging in. And that lightness that comes from people really listening and really respect. It's actually respect. It's this sound of mutual respect. That thing of that jazz thing where people are just throwing notes around at each other. It's actually a lack of, I believe, a lack of self-respect and a lack of respect for the other people. Completely unconsciously. You know, it's totally not, nobody's agree. intending disrespect, but actually that's what it's a result of, you know, whereas yeah, I totally what, I th- what you do, I think is tremendously respectful. So speaking so. of Rob's wonderful, light, airy, innovative, original, respectful music, I'd like you to hear some of it now. So uh, can you please uh, choose a track from your new album that you'd like us to hear and announce it? Sure, absolutely. It would be great. I think a great track to listen to to give an overall perspective of what the new album is about is perhaps the sixth track, which is called Synesthesia. And it is a sort of blend of my love of of modern jazz and of, of my love of, we've been talking about the great fusion artists. And it's a co-composition that I, I wrote together with an Italian drummer called Enzo Zarilli, yeah. who's full of wonderful rhythmic uh, exercises that he's showed to me being on the road with his quartet over the last few years. He's a huge fan of uh, people like uh, you know people like Steve Gadd and people and you know drummers of that of that generation, Vinny. And he showed me this exercise, this rhythmic exercise, and I, I wrote a tune with it. And it's it's the sixth track on the new album, and it's called Synesthesia. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, thanks for that, Rob. Uh, yeah, that's a really great new album. I, I, I love your album. Uh, it's very interesting. Cheers, Carl. I've seen you playing uh, a couple of different guitars. The three three is it three three five with a Bigsby? That is my and main act. That's your yes. main guitar, yeah. So yeah, the Bigsby is not standard on a three three five, is it? Or did you get that added? I very much was persuaded by my old teacher John Paracelli to <laughs> put the Bigsby arm on. I oh, did he. He yeah. doesn't use one himself, though, does he? Well, he for years used this this curious Paul Reed Smith guitar. Oh, twenty four fret. Yeah, and it did have oh, a yeah. whammy bar on it. Yeah. And then about five years ago, I believe that John switched to playing uh, a Collings oh, okay. three three five style guitar, and he had a Bixby arm put on. And I tried his Collings out, and I thought, my word, this this is too good to be true. And he told me all these wonderful anecdotes about why having a Bigsby is, is the best thing ever. And I <laughs> fell foul to his temptation. Oh, great. Yeah. And I love it. I don't know. Do you yeah. use one? I used a whammy bar for, um, for years. Um, I played a strat for a long time and I always had a tremolo bar, but it's not really tremolo. Is it tremolo's volume? It's a vibrato bar, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, a- yeah. Um, I used one for, um, a long time. And then about, um, 10 years ago, a friend of mine said, you're still using that whammy bar, Carl? And I said, yeah. And he just sort of looked at me as <laughs> if time for something new. And actually, he didn't say anything. He's actually a really good mate. Yeah. And um, and so I just thought, mm, I wonder what he's talking about. And then I just stopped using it and started playing a Gibson with, with a stop tailpiece. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm perfectly happy without it. But I had 20-odd happy years with one. I mean, but, yeah, yeah, it's uh, the, the great. It's yeah. a great sound. And I, I yeah. also, when I'm playing in situations without bassists or drummers, I don't use the 335. I use a Gibson oh, L5. L5, yeah. That's a great sound, man. It's a great yeah. sound. And, of course, yeah. no whammy bar in sight. And yeah. um, I'm... I love the sound of the L5 because it, it has this warmth and yeah. resonance with there's just harmonics ringing out all over the place, yeah. you know, where you can really hear yeah. the overtones. And yeah. I find it a bit too much with bass and drums sometimes because sure, it's yeah. so round. Yeah, you it, lose that purity of sound too when you turn a guitar like that up really past a certain volume. Exactly, and yeah. I think that the three three five with bass and drums, it's mm. like it, it, it's almost like there's a filter on the lower end of the instrument that just leaves this space for drums yeah, and true. for, for yeah. double bass and or electric yeah. bass. And I mean, the, the, I could tell you a hilarious story about why I put the whammy bar on it, which is that <laughs> Come on. John Paracelli himself said to me, I spent years playing with Django Bates who could do, you had 88 keys. He had a synthesizer. He had one of those, I can't remember what the name is, uh, a classic synth from the kind of seventies and eighties. It's a profit. Uh, he had oh, a profit yeah. five. Yeah. Uh, Django played one of these profit fives with a, with a, with a, you know, lots of synthesized, options and he also played piano at the same time so he was doing these you know two manuals and he could do all this world of sound and john just felt totally incompetent in in comparison to django's world of sound that he was creating and so john said well look the only thing that i've got on django's piano playing is the fact that i can play a chord and i can bend the whole chord a little bit and that's what the the bigsby arm or the whammy bar can do is that you can play a whole chord and just put that little bit of vibrato on it to make it to give it a bit of wobble and a bit of, a bit of shine. And he said, "That's yeah. the the only thing I've got left over Django Bates's mastery yeah. of the eighty eight keys is to play a chord and make it wobble." And I thought that's yeah. that is true. We've got to have that's... one advantage over piano here, otherwise it's yeah, not fair. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, what kind of things do you practice these days? I basically just since we've been in lockdown, I've basically just been playing Bach for the last two and a half months. I've not really thought much about other, I've learned a couple of standards and I've, well, I mean, we talked on the phone. I've also been digging into a bit of old McLaughlin Shakti 
Uh, yeah. Are you learning that? Exactly. So I'm trying to get my get my fingers around Joy, the first Joy, track off yeah. the first Shakti album. But really, I'm just working on Bach, cello suites, and violin partitas. So and on the classical guitar? No, just with a with a plectrum. Oh right. Do you play classical guitar or acoustic guitar much? I love the sound of classical guitar, and I do. You, I've got a really nice nylon string that i bought off a friend uh, a brazilian friend who lives in 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 portugal i bought i bought it off of him out when i was out there visiting him and i have got a beautiful instrument but i i would say that i basically just use it to to play bossa nova and samba accompaniments yeah which i've spent a lot of time studying that that accompanimental style yeah. of, of people like uh, joao gilberto and yeah. joao jo bosco i love that yeah. but i've never done the more you know the kind of spanish classical guitar tradition i've never really got my my fingers around that my right hand yeah. what about you oh, okay. me i i did a bit of classical guitar in school and then i kind of left it alone but actually i've, been, I've written some pieces for classical guitar and, and acoustic guitar over the last 15 years and I've, actually every day i i the first thing i do for my practice is i I practice classical and steel string guitar for mm-hmm. a while, but it's all—it's not jazz at all. I don't really—I don't like playing it with a pick. It's too sort of loud and ferocious. I, on my own, on a gig, I'll do that. But yeah, yeah. at home, I—I I just sort of play these things that I've written, and I've got arrangements of some standards and pop songs that I play through as well. But yeah, I, I love—I love the instrument. I—it's—I started to feel dis contented with just playing the electric guitar at home about 15 years ago because that's what yeah. i've been doing for a long time and i've been playing the acoustic and classical guitar at home every day for yeah since then you know fantastic yeah mm. i love the sound of i mean for me yeah. there's nothing like Joao Gilberto yeah. accompanying, accompanying his voice on the nylon yeah. string guitar that Absolutely. is just yeah. i could i would happily listen to that every day for the rest of my life sure. you know, yeah. and i want i've always having i've played with quite a few of the brazilians here who live in london yeah and have always tried to really be attentive to that right hand style sure. playing yeah. samba properly right i think it's just it's a pretty crucial part of the jazz and the world music um language on the guitar isn't it that sure. that style yeah. of bossa and samba i love it so just briefly, um, you would like to choose another track from your from your new album? Definitely, yeah, happily, happily. I think maybe we should go with the title track, which Great. is called "Life Is the Dancer." Okay, so this is "Life Is the Dancer" from Rob Love, the title track from his his new album, fantastic album.
So that was uh, Life is a Dancer from Rob's new album, wonderful new album that you should all buy. Um, <laughs> Please. Uh, certainly, you won't regret it. It's a great listen. I certainly find it very uplifting and, and original and, and inspired. Thank you, Carl. Uh, and I love to have it wafting around the house, oh. cheerfully wafting around the house. Fantastic. Which is great, yeah. So um, just to sum up, so, um, you know, you've obviously got a lot of experience, played with a lot of people, got a great interest in, in a great diversity of music. I know it's a funny thing to ask in this time of lockdown, but what, what, are, you, what are your plans for the future? What are you working on now? Well, at the moment I'm here in, in South London with my partner who is a whose name is Elina. She's a wonderful Albanian jazz singer. Her, name, her full name is Elina Duni. And she is, um, she's been working with a great German record label called ECM for the last few years. Oh, wow. And we actually, just before the lockdown hit, we recorded an album. Some, most of it is a, is a kind of duo concept, but it's, we're augmented on the recording by a wonderful Swiss trumpet player, called Matthew Michel and uh, an English pianist and drummer called Fred Thomas. And those two are kind of think we kind of think of them as painters over the top of our duo canvas. And they bring their colours and their ideas to our original songs. And we recorded that in February and we're hoping to release it in November on ECM. Wow. And okay. at the moment we're just trying our best to plan out how we go about getting the music out there whether it's via whether touring will be back by november or december whether some countries in europe will have us for concerts so we're not totally sure we'll be able to perform live in the uk this year but we'd love to think that we can play around the continent and we're working on some new music here at home we're composing some songs i've been we've been listening to loads of stuff together you know we've i've got seriously into back into nick drake after a long time oh right okay and just trying to think about how i can maybe write some music which in, in, incorporates some of nick's guitar sounds he has such a distinctive yeah thing going on and his harmonies i love his harmony and yeah and just trying to incorporate some of those sounds with some some of my other jazz uh kind of tastes at, at this time and also with that she's a singer and i'm a mm. guitar player we're trying i've been listening to some of those english singer songwriters like nick and john martin and yeah. trying to fuse that maybe with some of my more jazz my jazz uh, jazzier ideas and thinking about that you know like, like a bit like Matheny did back in the 70s with, sure, his, with the american with sound the yeah. americana sound you know i'm just thinking about <coughs> there's a way of doing that yeah, here yeah, sure well i think that's really great you know you, you know, you are who you are. You're not from the Mississippi, man. You know? Unfortunately, <laughs> if only maybe in a previous well, lifetime. It, it doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Anyway, it's been really wonderful talking to you, Rob. Cheers, Carl. Okay, Rob. Bye for now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For lessons, resources, and free stuff to take your guitar playing to the next level, visit www.fretdojo.com.